The 22nd Psalm, verse number 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my, great pra- comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You may be seated. The 22nd Psalm is, of course, a messianic song. You've got to remember when it was written, it was not written to just be preached. It really wasn't written originally to be preached. It was written to be sung. And this is a song that was written a thousand years approximately before Jesus Christ ever walked the earth. And yet as you read through the words, if you're paying attention, you find distinct parallels between what Jesus experienced on Mount Calvary at the time of his crucifixion 
and what is written in this song that David wrote some thousand years before Jesus came. It's a messianic psalm. It is a prophetic song. And most of your conservative scholarship regards it as such. And although I would love just to preach the first 21 verses and focus all of my thoughts on what Jesus did and what He accomplished, and of course we'll talk about that, but I really want to say that more often than not, everyone recognizes the deep prophetic legitimacy of the first 21 verses of this psalm, And yet very rarely does anybody mention the fact that the rest of the psalm also carries a strong prophetic promise. Whereas we see Jesus in the first 21 verses, you move through it and you're going to find two things uh, kind of incorporated in the last handful of verses. And my thrust this morning is to focus on that because as strongly as we believe that the first part has come to pass, we must recognize that the second part of the song must come to pass. What does a 3,000 year old song have to do with the mission of the 21st century church? And I'm going to tell you it has everything to do with it. So let's begin where the psalm begins. I want to talk to you about provision. I want to talk to you about what Jesus has offered. These verses should both warm our hearts and humble our hearts in the same moment. They should sober our minds but galvanize our souls because of what Jesus did in order to secure you for eternity. He was forsaken by the Father. These are the words of Jesus Christ on the cross, yet they were written by David a thousand years earlier. Here are the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David is looking historically the interaction of the covenant people, the the Jews, the Israelites. And he is here saying in his hour of pain, in his hour of anguish, Lord as they have cried to you, I cry to you now. You have answered them and yet David is pinning these words which Jesus would quote on the cross and they carry the, the reality of Jesus being forsaken by the Father. I cannot make too light of this. When Jesus was on the cross, we'll talk about the physical suffering. We'll talk about the abandonment. We'll talk about the mistreatment, the abuse, the violence done against Him. But when Jesus was considering the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, the the harshest part of the cup that He had been given to drink is that He would be made sin. He would be made sin so that we might in time be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus hung there, it was no small thing. It was not a technicality. It was not on the forensic checklist of things that must be accomplished on the cross. But for the first time in their eternal experience, there was a forsaking by the Father of the Son of God. That literally God the Father, as it were, turned His back in abandonment on His Son while His Son was being made sin. The reason for that is very clear because the eyes of the Lord are too pure to look upon sin. And as all of the wrath and the fury of God against my sin and your sin and all of the sin of all of the redeemed for all of the ages, all of that wrath was being placed upon Jesus and part of that wrath was this, the forsaking of the one who was being made sin. And Jesus cried that out. He sensed it in a way that um, 
we need to be careful even trying to explain because there's no parallel. That, that the, the oneness between Father and Son was intentionally interrupted in that moment as Jesus became sin and paid the wages of sin, which is death. As if we could possibly fathom that, which we can't, but we can accept by faith that that is an excruciating reality that Jesus experienced on the cross. Verses 6 through 13 may help us to identify a little bit more about what Jesus offered in His provision of Himself. He was rejected by humanity. As Jesus talked about Israel being rescued by God, here we have His words, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Picture yourself at the cross. Remember the scene, verse 7, All who see me mock me. Do you remember that? They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Remember, this was prophesied a thousand years before it happened, but the Gospel writers give us these very words being spoken from the crowd that day. Verse 9, Yet Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Now hear this. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths wide at me like a ravening and roaring lion. What we have here, again, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before the actual moment of Jesus' crucifixion, it is a clear depiction of the scene that day. The reference to the bulls of Bashan, the, the, and we'll see more in just a moment, the Roman soldiers, the dogs, the Gentile, the, 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 the workers of evil that were not part of God's covenant people, surrounded the Son of God. And they scorned Him, and along with the chief priests and the religious leaders, they mocked Him and laughed at Him and wagged their heads and heaped upon the Son of God, the Savior, the King, the Lord, heaped upon Him the deepest of scorn that their defiled hearts could produce. And they came out of the abundance of their heart, their mouths spoke, and it was death and hatred and rejection upon Jesus. Even His own disciples, the ones in whom He had poured years, three years of His life, Mentoring and discipling, they fled, they ran, they forsook him, all but John and a few women. Jesus, in order to provide you and I with eternity and paradise with him, had to take the rejection of mankind, had to be forsaken by the Father, and had to suffer immeasurably in the body. That's verses 14 through 18. Listen to the description in this song. Of all things to sing, they sang this. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember, he said, I thirst, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me with a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. Pardon, uh, pause there for a moment. Friends, this is a thousand years before the crucifixion. The, the Jews, they didn't crucify people. When we're talking about this prophetic detail, we're talking about a forecasting of how the Messiah would die. And long before crucifixion was a common means of uh, 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 capital punishment, here we have written in a Jewish song of all things, the Messiah crying out that He's encircled by Gentile dogs, that they've mocked Him. 
that they laughed at him. He'll go on to say that they tore my garments and, and rolled dice for it. That is a prophetic detail filled to the T, fulfilled to the T at the crucifixion of Jesus. But my hands and my feet they've pierced. It takes a lot of faith to not believe the Bible. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a willful, obstinate heart not to read within these lines and know that it was written a thousand years before the details were given, a thousand years before it had been written. And yet people, what we say it's a coincidence that this was all fulfilled in one man in one moment's life. He said, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they roll the dice. The physical excruciation of crucifixion is much too deep for me to go in here. Ultimately, the crucified victim does not bleed out. They die of suffocation. Crucifixion was invented by the torturers in order to prolong death. And so the victims typically would hang there sometimes for days. That is often why they had to break their legs so to speed up the death process. And yet Jesus dismissed his own spirit when he knew that the fullness of the penalty for sin had been completely paid. He cried out under that darkened sky, Tetelestai, it is finished, it is paid in full. And then he gave up the ghost. He dismissed his spirit and he physically died. And yet the details of his death, all written out in Psalm 22, a millennium before it came to pass. Verses 19 through 21 reveal how he was crushed and yet fully surrendered to his father. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Even as Jesus was suffering, even as he was experiencing the rejection of the Father, the absolute rejection and humiliation by those that he came to save, as he was physically in agony to the extent that you and I just can't fathom that. I don't want to, thank God. We don't have to. But he did. But in the midst of it all, do you see that he is still, he is still in absolute submission and yieldedness and surrender to the Father? He is still confident that God will not allow his soul, his flesh, to see corruption in the grave. He is still testifying to the faithfulness of God who will come and deliver him from the roaring, ravening lion and from the dogs that encircle him. He knows that the Father is abandoning him and forsaking him, for he came to do the will of the Father. It didn't dawn on Jesus later in life. He knew it. And that is why in the moments before his death, he set his face like flint to go up to Jerusalem where he knew they would reject him. He knew they would beat him. He knew they would scourge him. He knew they would reject him and finally crucify him there in agony. But he didn't run from it. He had asked the Father in Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. But if it is not possible, then let your will be done. And the will of the Father was to bruise the Son. My friends, this could be depressing were we not enlightened as to why all of this was done. All of this was done so people like you and people like me would never have it done to us. In a day where we are tempted to make light of the holiness of God, let me just say, if you ever wonder how holy God is, in order to satisfy His righteous justice, His own Son had to die. That's how holy He is. 
If I died on that cross, I'd be paying for my sin, and I'd get what I deserved. If you shed your blood for your sins, there would be nothing you could say. It would be just, it would be equitable, it would be righteousness, for the wages of sin is death. But for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Meaning this, somebody has to die for your sin. Somebody has to die for your sin. There's no free pass. There's no working it off. There's no doing better from this day forward to show God how sincere you are. Somebody has to pay the price, and the price has been eternally set as death. Therefore, there are only two options concerning who will pay for my sin and your sin. I can pay for my sin. Before August 4th, 1994, I could have paid for my sin, and I would have died and paid for it forever, always paying, never paid up. And that would have been just. But grace came to me, and the gospel came to me, and God's truth came to me, and the Holy Spirit brought me to a place of brokenness before the reality that I was a condemned sinner before a holy God, a sinner who had nothing to offer, a sinner who had no ability to hide. And in that moment, God's truth came and said, you can die for your sin or you can trust in my son who already died and rose again. And by grace that day, I trusted in Christ and therefore I do not worry about whether my sin is paid for or not. If, if, if I were to be condemned, it would be because Jesus didn't do the job. And I'm going to tell you something, perish that thought, Jesus did the job. And friend, today I just, I, 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 I put myself in the place of a, a, a beggar. I, I, I beg you, Paul said that. We beseech you that if you're still playing around with life and death and what comes next, I tell you, that is a game you cannot win apart from the aid of another Jesus must pay the price or the only other remedy to God's holy justice is that you will pay the price. And again, I say you will pay forever, but it'll never be paid. So I call on you today to think soberly about your life, about where you stand today. If things wrap up for you this afternoon, are you prepared for that? Have you cast all of your burden upon the Lord He willingly took it. He's provided for it, and he offers it to you. So we go down further, because that's actually not my message today. Verses 22 through 31 is really what I want to say, and I want to preach to the church now. That is for those of you that are considering Christ, what I've said up to this point. And I I tell you, consider well, and consider quickly. For the church, this word is for us. In Psalm 22, and again, this is prophetic, so let's get in there. Gratitude, which is our motive for the mission. Christ has provided everything. What motivates us to proclaim what he has done? I'm going to give you one word, and it's a word that I think is the cure to a whole host of ills. It is the word gratitude. Gratitude is the medicine that will solve an abundance of troubles in your life, my life, our hearts, our lives together. See what the psalmist wrote. Look at the expression of our gratitude. And again, these words can be attributed to the Son of God. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. 
And then we're exhorted, you who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all of you offspring of Israel. The idea is that Jesus, yes, Lord, Savior, Master, King, but He identifies in a certain way with us as brethren. He being the firstborn and the only begotten, but we being the twice-born children of God. And yet Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. That in some way Jesus takes great pleasure in, in identifying with us not only as Lord and Savior, but in the uniqueness of His relationship with the Father as He brings us as adopted sons unto the Father. And because of that, when our hearts are right, when our minds are enlightened, when our souls are at rest, when all of the, the, the intrusive thoughts and demands of this earthly life are swept aside for a moment, do we not experience the deep well of gratitude and the cool waters to the soul that come from that well? You know why we were worshiping so enthusiastically this morning? Because the Holy Spirit comes through this beautiful medium called music, and He touches a part of our whole, our soul where we know who we are, and we know who He is, and we recognize He did it all, and we're grateful. And so some will stand silently and weep, others will lift their hands, some will kneel on the floor, some will do circles on the front row, I don't care, it just was in us this morning. And, and, and it's just saying, oh man, how good He is to us. We're commanded here, praise Him. Never, never give in to the thought that you can assume that God knows your heart. I know He is omniscient, but in spite of that, He says, I want to hear you praise me. Well, God knows my heart. I don't have to say anything. Well, He told you to praise Him. Well, well I am quietly in my heart. Well, you got a whole lot of scriptures you got to deal with if that's all you're ever doing. Because there are a lot of scriptures that say, turn up the volume. Turn up the volume. Here we're told to glorify Him. It's being told to Israel in context, but of course this is a Messianic psalm with application to church. Glorify Him. Make much of His weight. Make much of His glory. Make much of His thickness, His fullness, His heaviness. The kavod of God, the, the, the heaviness, the immensity of God as He moved into the, the tabernacle and moved into the camp of Israel on multiple occasions and the people were awestruck and the thickness of His presence on Sinai. And then there were even times, that, and you'll find both pre-resurrection and post-resurrection, where people would come into the presence of Jesus and the immensity of who He was would literally bring them to their knees. There was no flippancy in the presence of God. There was great joy, great jubilation, great celebration, but nobody was casual. So they would glorify Him and they would stand in awe of Him. That's the expression of our gratitude. I don't know why and I don't really have to, I just know that this is true. There is something about sincere corporate praise and individual praise, but since we're all together we'll talk about gathered praise. There is something about it that, that brings two results. One, it brings pleasure to God and it really makes the devil mad. That's number two. Corporate praise. I'm going to tell you, listen to me. Whether alone or whether in groups, the, the, the thing that will chase, the Bible tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. And a lot of times we take ownership, we take authority, we invoke the name of Jesus, and that's fine. But one of the best ways to send the devil running and make sure he goes and gets some counseling is to just praise the Lord and don't stop. 
Keep worshiping the Lord above and beyond what you feel, above and beyond what you're experiencing. You're just testifying to the goodness, the grandeur, the greatness, the glory of God, and you just keep going after it. I've been with people that say, well, Jeff, if I don't feel it, it must be fake. No, it's true whether we feel it or not. Praise, that's the problem in our generation. We've associated praise with just primarily a feeling. It's not primarily a feeling. It is ascribing to God His worth and His due and His glory. And the devil hates that because that's what the devil wanted for himself. And so we're commanded over and over again to praise the Lord. And one of the byproducts of that is you can literally praise your way into victorious breakthrough at times. I've done it. I've been there. Verse 24, what's the reason for our gratitude? Why, why, Why are we praising Him? Well, He gives us one reason here. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden His face from Him. But He's heard when He cried to Him. Again, perfectly fulfilled in the fact that Jesus came forth from the grave. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then three days later, you know what happened. The Father says amen to Jesus' statement of, it is finished. The resurrection, it's been said before, that's like the Father saying, amen, it is finished. Come forth, my son. The reason why you and I praise is because you haven't been forgotten. You haven't been despised. You haven't been rejected. You haven't been cast aside. You haven't been trodden upon by God. He's not indifferent to you. He's not turning a deaf ear to your very sincere cries. He absolutely is working in ways, and just because you don't see it doesn't mean He's not doing it. And so part of our faith sometimes is when we, we can't trace His hand, what do we do? We trust His heart. Amen. When we don't see that He is answering these cries. Listen, uh, let me just make sure y'all are awake. Raise your hand if you've ever gone through a season where you're crying louder to him than you ever have and he's not doing anything that you can see. Man, I, uh, here, this will encourage you. I spent a few years there. I'm not, yeah, saying, oh, hmm, something to look forward to. No. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, David said it this way. King David wrote in another place, before I was afflicted, I went astray. It was good for me that I was afflicted. And sometimes the affliction is God being near but being quiet. When he's quiet in our lives, I've found in my life, he, he, he's trying to teach me, Jeff, obey the last thing you did hear me say. And so often when we get into that place and we think he's not going to answer, he's not going to come through, he's not going to move, he's not going to be God. And here we're told that no, he hasn't abhorred your affliction, he's not hidden his face, and he's not refused to hear. And sometimes we wait and we trust silently, but He always comes through. Always. You say, Jeff, I object. I went through something and He didn't come through. I want to tell you something. God comes through 100% of the time, but until we orient our expectations and our trust towards Him, sometimes it can feel like He didn't come through. We have to bend to the way He's blowing the wind. We have to press into Him. We have to lean unto Him. And nine times out of ten, if you will, uh, endure patiently and listen. Before too long, you're going to know why He answered your prayer differently than what you had asked. We celebrate Him and we live in gratitude because He is a good, good Father. What about the duration of our gratitude? Look at verse number 25. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Again, a messianic psalm. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. A couple of things here, without getting bogged down in the details, because the details are actually really good here, but I'm going to discipline myself. Jesus, because it's a messianic psalm, and you you can't push this psalm to be... um, applicable in every single statement, but this is one I think that we can stand on firm ground on. When he says, I will praise Him in the midst of the great congregation, I'm going to tell you that points to something that none of us experienced yet. This points to a time where the body of Christ will be complete, there will be nothing left undone, you will not have your sin nature to contend with, neither will the person next to you. By the way, just touch the person next to you right now and say, I'm going to be glad when your sin is gone. Go ahead, go ahead, do it, do it. If they're smart, they're going to say, me too. But there's coming a moment where the Son of God will have all of His bride complete, and we will be standing in some scene of paradise around the throne of God, and the Son of God will proclaim His name to that great congregation. We will watch the Son praise the Father, and none of us have experienced that yet. There are such treasures awaiting us, and we skim through verses that that bait us towards them. We just run right past these verses. I want to stop and say, He's going to praise the name of the Lord in the great congregation. That has not happened yet. doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't glorified the Father here now by faith, but this speaks of something more deeply. This speaks of a climax that is coming. He says, those that seek the Lord, verse 26, will praise Him. You'll find your praise as long as you don't quit seeking Him. You quit seeking Him, you'll lose your praise in a heartbeat. You quit pressing in, you'll run aground. But if you keep seeking and pressing, mining out this life, finding the diamond of God's glorious grace in every situation, you're going to find yourself praising Him. And then the exclamation, may your hearts live forever. The duration of our praise is infinite. We'll never run out of things to praise Him about. You know, down here we, we get tired of songs. We do. I mean, we sing them, we like them, we enjoy them, and then we get sentimental about them and we hate them when we don't sing them anymore and everybody wants to drudge up the song, favorite song from 1952, 1982, 1992, 2002, and last month. And it's all about sentimentality. Do you know that in glory there is going to be nothing inhibiting constant, fresh, flowing praise and it'll never be dull? It'll never go dry? There'll never be a bad chord in heaven, worship team. You just look forward to it. Never going to miss a chord. Never going to miss a note. We're going to be singing with angels. All of the redeemed are going to sing. Y'all are not with me this morning. Y'all are just waiting for the cafeteria today. Come on, get in here with me. I'm telling you, we are going to be in paradise unfettered, unobstructed, unhindered, in glorified bodies with glorified voices, with the angels of glory before the throne of glory, lifting up our anthems in the very presence of the Lamb of God. And we're never going to run out of new material. It's just going to be good. Good, good, or goodest. I cannot wait. But until we get there, we've got work to do, and that's the last of these verses. We have some very serious work to do. We're very grateful people, right? Maybe not every minute of every day, but when you're you're thinking straightly, 
you're actually a very grateful person because you know he's everything and you love him. You don't love him as much as you could, neither do I, but we're growing, we're pressing in, we're changing. His love first, our response is to love him more. But we can't keep it to ourselves. We can't hijack the gospel, celebrate it in here, and then go through those front doors into a community that needs what we have. We can't hide it. We can't put the lamp under a basket. And so I want to say that though all of these words up to this point were clearly fulfilled 2,000 years ago, verses 27 through 31 are still being fulfilled. It's prophecy. It must come. This is part of our mission. Let's get into it. Outward vision. Look at what the scriptures say. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. I don't, I just, I don't have time, probably not even the skill to articulate what's stirring in my mind and my heart right now. The vision of Jesus Christ has to be the vision of the church. People ask Dustin and myself regularly, what's the vision of the church? Well, let me tell you, the vision is the book of Acts and the Great Commission. The strategy can be unique from church to church. So what we're really asking when we're saying, what's the vision? We're actually asking a leader, what is the strategy? That can change from church to church, but we don't reinvent the vision. The vision is that the Son of God rules over the nations. That He is sovereign, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and eventually every eye is going to behold Him. That He will set up an actual rule on planet earth, and He will rule over the nations, and there will be those in the body of Christ that rule and reign with Him. That's all according to Scripture. But in order for Jesus Christ to be glorified and worshipped, according to the price that He has paid, He has entrusted His church right now to advance the gospel by faith. That means when Jesus is saying, here is what it's going to be. In the end, every family of the earth will be represented. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every color, every language, it's all going to be represented from every generation. But the stewardship of each generation is to reach the people of that generation and the upcoming generation. That means we strategize, we work, we unite, we labor together, we pray together, we sacrifice together. Why? Because all of the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. That doesn't mean every single person. It just means that Jesus didn't segregate His glorious gospel to 19th, 20th, and 21st century United States of America. We've Americanized the gospel. I'm telling you, there is no greater love on the American Christian than there is for the Ethiopian Christian, or the Chinese Christian, or the Australian Christian, or some indigenous tribe that has yet to receive the gospel. So much of the world has never heard the name of Jesus. Can you imagine that? There, there are many, many places in the world, multiple tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions, that if you went to them and you could find the way to say Jesus in their language, they would say back to you in their language, who is he? And Jesus has entrusted his church, a church like Newbridge. We have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. We, we have the ability. And though we cannot convert the world, we can do what we can do to make a difference across the street, in the school, 
and potentially for some of you overseas. That's why having Victoria up here this morning, a young woman who has known she was called to missions and waited on the Lord, and God is saying, this season right now I'm going to give you a couple things to obey. You're going to go to Uganda, your church is going to get you there, and you're going to serve these children. Say, well, Jeff, that's not changing the world. Really? Go tell that to the kids in Uganda. Tell it to them because their world will be changed. All the ends of the earth, and he'll rule over the nations. So many different little rabbit trails calling my name. He, He already rules over the nations, right? I mean, he does. He's sovereign. If he's not ruling over the nations, I want to know who is. But the fact of the matter is there's warfare. It's a contested territory. The whole earth is a contested territory. Jesus has decreed from all of eternity, it's mine. And yet because of the fall of Adam, and Adam received the title deed to the earth, and when Adam fell, he gave over authority to Satan. And Satan is now called the prince of the world, the prince of the power of the air. And he exercises dominion in a way there. Satan believes it's going to go on forever. He knows it's not, but he acts as if it is. And yet he also knows the clock is ticking, and at the end of the age, which you and I are currently in, the activity of the enemy is being exponentially increased. It's happening through human avenues. And so when that happens, I want to tell you, the Lord does not say, oh no, what do I do? The Lord begins to increase his activity. Satan has a third of the angels, God's got two-thirds of them. A third of the angels fell and became demons and united with Satan, and they want to seek to kill, steal, and destroy on planet earth. And yet God has two-thirds of those angels, but the majority of what God wants to do in advancing the gospel is not through angelic means, it's through human means, it's through the church. And so we've got to develop an outward vision for each of our lives. Don't give the best of yourself to trivial things. You have to work, most of you. You've got duties, I understand that. You can do those things without giving yourself to those things. Give yourself to the call of Jesus Christ on your life and watch watch what God will do. Watch what God will do with you. It's a downward vision. As the Lord looks down, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. I don't have enough time to even unpack this, but let me just say this. Uh, The Lord finds some of His choicest servants when they are face down in the dust with nowhere else to turn. And some of you are there today. Some of you are in a season of life that has put you flat on your belly, on your just stomach, just sucking in dirt saying, I don't think I can get much lower. And the Lord tells us here that His vision from heaven right there to where you were, all that He has envisioned for this planet and this generation can include those who are prosperous and those who are dying, those who are flailing those who are barely making it. The Lord is no respecter of persons. In verses 30 and 31, and I'll wrap up, forward vision. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. I've confessed this regularly here, especially during the Samuel series that I've been doing on Wednesday nights, just watching Samuel's life. Samuel's one of the rare people in the Old Testament that we see from birth all the way to the end of his life, and he's serving the Lord the whole time. It's a remarkable study. Um, 
but during this study, I, my heart has really just been impacted regularly, almost continually, by the Holy Spirit and impressing me that I have to spend much of my next years thinking about the generation coming behind me. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm going to speak to those of us that maybe aren't considered young anymore. It is very natural. I didn't say it's approvable, but it is natural to make church and ministry and worship in the kingdom all about preserving what God did when you were in your prime. It happens all the time. Most of the time it's in petty little things like music styles and what the church house looks like and when you meet and clothing worn to worship gatherings. Quite frankly, silly stuff that doesn't matter at all. But sometimes it's, it's hijacking the vision to the extent that we say to the, the, the next generation, you've got to become old like us for us to give you what you need. Now go back and look at the verse. Would you throw that last verse up on the screen again? Posterity is not a word that I use every day. It's just a word that means future generations. So it's really highlighted twice. Future generations shall serve him. That has been true up to your generation. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come. The coming generation will also come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the picture that's being painted here. It's very clear. It's not even ambiguous. It's this generation pours into the next generation, who pours into the next generation, who pours into the next generation. And all it takes is for one generation to get their hands so tightly upon the gospel, the kingdom, that instead of it looking like what God has made, it now has man's indentations and fingerprints on it. And so when it's handed to the next generation, they don't even know how to hold it. Listen to me. If we are going to be, I'm talking to New Bridge Church, if we are going to be the people that God wants us to be, then the older must take seriously the high call to pass on to the next generation an unvarnished gospel. None of our accents on it. We pass to them what is core and essential, and the Bible defines that for us. But the expression of it has been changing for 2,000 years. I'm going to break it to you. Nobody worshiped the Lord in here today like Paul and Silas did. Nobody did. Nobody worshiped the Lord today in the exact same way that David and his generation did. But the common thread through it all is that we worship in spirit and truth. And if we maximize the outward forms of that expression of spirit and truth, if we make those the crucial things, and we protect those, and we fight over those, and we preserve those, and we insulate those because it makes us feel comfortable, it makes us get in touch with our sentimental Christianity, then friends, then how in the world can we call ourselves faithful stewards of the gospel? Paul made this statement, if our gospel be hid. It's possible to hide the gospel, not only from the unbelievers, 
but from the generation upcoming who wants to know the God of the Bible but can't see him because we are portraying him as a 21st century Western conservative evangelical. I want the young people that come through the doors of this church to be benefited from those of us who are older. I want the young people to have confidence that when we say something is true, that it is true and they can match it with Scripture. I want the young people, the generation, to look at my generation and older and say they aren't hijacking the gospel. They're not making us conform to the way it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But this is a group of people who want us to be empowered in the gospel. Let me tell you something, the hell that is going to come against Christians in America in the next 20 years, it's not going to matter what the music sounds like. It's not going to matter what time of the day we meet. It's not going to matter what they wear to church. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Listen, I was talking with my friend Billy Humphrey over at IHOP this week. Dustin and I met with him and some other pastors, and we're strategizing for, for our, our, our community. And Billy was sharing with me that when he was in China a couple of months ago, that a Chinese Christian, by the way, they die over there at times for their Christianity when it's made known. They get imprisoned for their Christianity over there. And the Chinese Christian said to Billy, the American pastor, uh, Pastor, can, can you clarify something for me? Is it true that Christians in America will not fellowship together because some believe you go under the water for baptism and some believe the water goes on you for baptism. Is, is that true? Man. I'm like, there's worse stuff than that, brother. <laughs> But a Chinese Christian who feels like he's gained the biggest treasure in the world when he gets a Bible or when he meets another believer of any stripe cannot believe that we who have the freedom to worship, praise, serve, and advance the mission here would dare to squabble over whether you go in the water or the water goes on you. That's the kind of stuff I'm saying that when the fires of persecution come to this nation, that silliness is going to be burned out of the way. I'm going to suggest this, and then I'm going to close. Why don't we go ahead and burn it away now? Why don't we go ahead and let it go now? If it's not going to be worthwhile then, why are we dredging it around like a bronze serpent now? The mission is going to be framed up in weeks to months to come here. It involves all of us. We need you to participate. If this thing ever becomes a Sunday morning show with a killer set of music and a, uh, a wowing sermon, then I quit. It's not what I signed up for. I want to be amongst the people that are so hot on fire for the Son of God that they can't keep their mouths shut anymore. That's what the Lord wants from us.